The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. Our text this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 through 12. Conduct unbecoming is a phrase that refers to some negative or inappropriate, improper behavior that that doesn't fit with who you are. Something that's not suitable, it's inappropriate, uh, unworthy actions, and a lot of times we think of it in terms of the military because sometimes we hear the phrase conduct unbecoming an officer. One attorney who specializes in in this area, he notes that sometimes these behaviors are things that civilians would not even be punished for. And for example, civilians, it's not illegal to speak in a disrespectful manner towards someone. It might not be nice, but it's not going to get you arrested. There may not be punishment for it, but that's one of the common examples of conduct unbecoming an officer. And it can carry penalties. It can carry consequences. You say, why is that? That's not fair. It's because there's a higher standard among military officers. It's because more is expected of them. Because they are representing something bigger and greater than just themselves. And so it's a shameful thing when someone acts in a manner that's not worthy of who he or she truly is. And that's never truer than in the life of a Christian. We've been forgiven and redeemed and saved by the grace of God. We now have eternal hope in Jesus. And we need to live worthy of our great God and his eternal kingdom. Yes, there's a higher standard. Yes, there's a lot expected of God's children. You expect things of your children, don't you? Yes, you represent a king. And a kingdom much bigger and greater than you. And so your life matters, and so does the way you live it. And that's one of Paul's main messages for the Thessalonians. Their lives mattered. And the way they lived now as children of God mattered. They needed to walk worthy of God. We'll see that this morning, but we'll also see that this was such an important message to Paul that it even mattered to him how he taught it and how he felt about the ones he was teaching. And that ties in with what we saw last week earlier in the chapter. Paul talked about his motives and his methods when he was there in the city of Thessalonica. He denied having any impure motives for bringing the gospel. He didn't have any or use any impure methods. He wasn't one of these insincere charlatans traveling around out for himself, trying to take advantage of people and then move on to the next city before they really figured him out. He didn't bring a message of error. He didn't use any deceptive tactics like flattery. And he didn't impose strategies of uh, you know, throwing his weight around and demanding things from them. In the verses today, we'll also see the other side of the coin, what we would call the positive aspect. We'll see what Paul was like in the city. And he's going to use two major illustrations to describe himself. On the one hand, we'll see that Paul was like a gentle mother. 
And on the other hand, we'll see that he was like a father who led by example and taught his children. Paul combined the best attributes of both parents as he taught the Thessalonians to walk worthy of God. Let's read verse 7 through verse 12. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children, that you would walk worthy of God, who has called you unto his kingdom and glory. In verse 7 through 9, we see this illustration of Paul being like a mother among the Thessalonians. And the verse begins with this word, but, and it shows, it shows the strongest contrast Paul could give between what he was not, that, that insincere charlatan with impure motives, and what he was. It's the strongest contrast between a false spiritual leader uh, who doesn't care about the people that he's, that he's teaching to, and yet one who does. And he used this term, he said that he and, and his team were gentle. And your Bible may have a note that gives the word infant as an alternate reading here, maybe in one of those uh, little texts that you have. Uh, if you have an NIV translation, it actually says we were like young children. You say, well, which is it, Brother Matt? Is it infant or is it, is it gentle? That's kind of one of those interesting things here. There's only one letter different in the Greek language between the word infant and the word gentle. And so you have some ancient copies that have one word. Some ancient copies have another. Some scholars feel the best manuscripts that we have of the ancient copies actually say infant. infant. But a lot of commentaries think the word gentle fits the context better because it might be an awkward change to say we were like babies, like mothers. That would be an abrupt change. But it's not unlike Paul to switch metaphors quickly. The point is, whichever reading is original, the meaning's pretty obvious. Instead of harshly exercising his authority and coming in very gruff and rough and exercising his authority and throwing his weight around, he said, we were gentle. We were soft. We were innocent. And he gives a beautiful picture of that gentleness as the verse continues. He says, even as a nurse cherishes her children. When you see the word nurse here, don't think of someone uh, at a hospital who takes care of you or someone at the doctor's office who checks your blood pressure before the doctor comes in or something like that. That's not this word for nurse. Word actually comes from a word that means nourishment. And the picture is of a woman who is nursing a child. It's not even the common word for mother. There was a more generic term for a mother. And Paul could have easily used that term to say, we were like a mother among you. But he used this term that has a, a little more intimacy, a touch of tenderness here. This isn't just any mother. It's a nursing mother who's nourishing her child from herself. 
there's really nothing in this world like the bond between a nursing mother and her feeding child. And Paul uses this word in verse 7 to, to show this, the word cherishes. Some of you have a translation that says takes care of or tenderly cares for. The word here literally means to make warm. And think about the idea of a mother and an infant with this idea of imparting warmth. One of the best things and one of the first things hospitals do when a child is born is they take the baby and they lay him or her on the mother's chest, skin to skin. And the heat from the mother's body soothes and comforts and warms that infant. And it gives that baby a, a, an opportunity early in life to nurse and all of that goes such a long way in establishing that special bond between the mother and the child. It's, it's one of the most tender, most intimate, most warm relationships that, that we even have and can describe in this world. And Paul said, that's how I feel about you. That's how I acted among you. Don't listen to anyone who says, I didn't care about you because I left the city. I was the mother who nourished you. I was the mother who held you close to my bosom. Paul didn't feel like a hired nanny or a babysitter or a daycare worker. He said, I was like your nourishing mother. Years ago, one of my best friends, when he would watch his kids, when his wife was gone doing something else, would tell me he's babysitting. It's one of my biggest pet peeves in life. If you're watching your own children, even if you're doing it by yourself, it's not babysitting. It's called parenting. You young fathers in our congregation, we've got a few. Please do not ever say that you're babysitting your child. You're parenting them. You're fathering them. Paul was not babysitting the Thessalonians until he could leave the city. He wasn't just taking care of them for a minute until he could turn them over to someone else's care. He was gentle and tender and warm and nurturing like a mother would be with her infant. I'm going to be honest with you. That illustration intimidates me so much as a pastor. I'm afraid there are too many pastors today that feel and act like babysitters to their congregations instead of nursing mothers. I don't want to be your babysitter. I don't. Forgive me if I ever have been. I want to cherish you and warm you and nourish you from the Word of God. For Paul and for all pastors, Leading God's people should be less like a job and more like a relationship. It's a relationship, if you look in verse 8, that should have deep affection. This phrase, being affectionately desirous, comes from one word. It's a word that was used rarely. But sometimes parents would use this word to mark the gravestones of their deceased children. 
Some of you in this congregation have faced the trial of burying a child. You understand more than others the intense longing and affection that we're talking about here. And Paul says, that is what I felt for you. A good spiritual leader will have an intense love and affection for his people. If you look in verse 8, it's, it's an affection to the extent that he not only shares the gospel with them, he better. He, he not only shares the truth, that has to be happening or there's no nourishment going on. That's a given, it should be at least. The mother has to feed her children. But beyond that, a mother shares her very life with her children. And a pastor should share the gospel, but should share his very life and soul with his congregation. One author said it this way. I love this quote. He said, Paul's work was not carried out with a detached professionalism. I love that phrase, detached professionalism. I think maybe we'd say it's the difference between preaching and pastoring. I've heard a lot of seasoned pastors before say things like, you know, people may not always remember your sermons, but they'll remember the hospital visits. They'll remember the words you spoke at, the, at their loved one's funeral. They'll remember the prayers you, you said with them and, and those sorts of things. That old adage is probably true that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. A good pastor is like a good mother, caring for her children, not just feeding them, but investing her life and her soul into them, even to the point, if you look at verse 9, to the point that she makes sacrifices for them. In verse 9, Paul mentioned how they worked. They worked when they were in the city. We talked about that before, how when Paul was in Thessalonica, he set up his leatherworking business. He set up his tent-making uh, shop in the marketplace and this was how the missionaries supported themselves, mainly. They did receive support from Philippi. Philippi sent some help and support to Paul while he was in Thessalonica. But they, they worked and they sacrificed so that they weren't chargeable to, the, chargeable to the Thessalonians. That word chargeable there, some of you have the word burden. It's a good translation. It's the idea of a financial burden to, to weigh someone down excessively. It's really neat because in verse 6, Paul just mentioned how I could have thrown my weight around and made demands. I could, I could have just kind of dug in and said, you better support me while I'm here or I'm gone. But he didn't do that. He worked hard. He sacrificed so that he wasn't a burden to the people. Isn't that what good mothers do? Good mothers are the, some of the most sacrificial people in this world. They will, they will give of themselves for the betterment of their children. If you had a mother like that, you need to be thankful. Mothers will make sacrifices. Sometimes mothers who are nursing have to not eat certain foods because it might upset the child, or there may be something uh, in the milk that, that changes because of this. So they make the sacrifice of not eating something while they're feeding their children. Pastors need to be more like that. Not just a public speaker who works on Sundays. A good pastor better share the Word of God. He's not nourishing the people if he doesn't do that. The people can't grow if they're not fed from God's Word. 
but a pastor needs to share his life and his soul with his congregation. And that may mean some vulnerability, some weakness, some sacrifice like a mother. Paul did that in Thessalonica. I think verse 9 sort of acts like a hinge between these two illustrations because it could definitely relate to a mother's sacrifice for her children, but also fathers. Fathers sacrifice for their children, fathers work to provide for their, for their families uh, and to set an example for the children. Paul's going to use this example of working and laboring later in 2 Thessalonians uh, to say that he set that example for them, that they should work. So it seems like it might go with the mother and the fatherly illustration. But as we move into verse 10 through 12, Paul definitely shifts to the illustration of a father. And if you look, he intensifies the illustration in verse 10 by not only calling upon them as witnesses, but God also. He said, ye are witnesses and God also. How holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. The first aspect of this fatherly illustration is that a father sets a good example for his children. A good father leads by example. Do you remember in chapter 1 he already mentioned how they imitated him? You became imitators of me and of the Lord. So when they imitated Paul, they were imitating a good fatherly example. And specifically, the example he says he lived, you see this word holily, or your translation may just say holy. It's actually not the common word for holy in the New Testament. It's a different word that probably has, uh, probably closer to our word for piety or, or devout actions. And if we were going to maybe split hairs between the two words, holiness might refer more to your character, while this word might refer more to your conduct. Paul was emphasizing that when he was among them, he did the right things. He lived like a devout person would, like a, like a pious person would. He did the right things. And of course, there's a connection between holiness and holy living. But Paul did the right things. That's what a father should do. Do the right things in your life so that your children can see what you're doing. In fact, when this word holily was used in connection with the next word justly, it referred to someone who kept both God's laws and man's laws. That's pretty awesome to me. It's hard to say if that's exactly what Paul was thinking here, but he did just call upon God and man as witness. Ultimately, the third word he mentions, we lived unblameably. That's how they behaved themselves. There wasn't anybody inside the church that could point to them and say, you're not even doing what God said. Didn't mean they were sinless and perfect. There wasn't anybody outside the church that could say, but you're doing this. Do you remember the accusation brought against the Christians? In Acts chapter 17, when Paul had established the church and they, they formed that mob, the unbelieving Jews formed the mob and they drugged Jason and some of the other Christians in front of the city rulers the accusation was not, these are evil people that are stealing from us. They're, not, they're, they're causing riots. They're, they're murderers. They're destroying property. It was nothing like that. The accusation, they said, is they preach another king, Jesus. That's all they could say about him. There's nothing evil. There's nothing hateful about it. And so Paul set this great example for the people to follow. And that's what a good father does. That's also what a good pastor should do. Lead by example. 
Paul told Timothy that a pastor must be blameless. It's not the, it's not the same word used here, but it's similar. It doesn't mean that a pastor is perfect or sinless. There's only been one sinless pastor, and that's Jesus. But it does mean that there isn't some glaring deficiency in his life that someone could point to, obviously, and say, my goodness, he's your pastor. He does that all the time. He does this. He, he does that. It's, there's not some huge handle that someone can take him down to the mat with. There's not some obvious impurity. And Paul said, that's the way we lived among you. We were blameless. But if you look at verse 11, the example of a father and a pastor is not just a silent example. But a good father and a good pastor also teaches with his words. And Paul's going to bring that up in verse 11. And he really gives, he uses three words to sort of give three different aspects of, of the words here. First one, he says, as you know how we exhorted every one of you. word exhorted is related to the word that he used in verse 3 earlier in the chapter to describe the gospel itself as encouraging or as comfort or as an exhortation. A good father will come up beside his children sometimes and put his arm around them. Encourage them. Offer them guidance and help and support. He uses this word comforted. And the idea of this word is, is drawing near to someone and speaking friendly, encouraging words. It was used twice in John chapter 11 when people came to comfort Mary and Martha after their brother Lazarus had died. What do you say to people at a visitation or at a funeral? You come up close to them and you say comforting, encouraging, friendly things. That's the idea of this word. And both of these words, especially when they're connected together here, it gives a picture of a loving, helpful, comforting, encouraging father. Sometimes children mess up. Sometimes they fail. We all know that. We were all children. Sometimes they need guidance and encouragement, and they should be able to rely upon their father for that. A father who never puts his arm around his children is not a good father. But there's a lot more to fathering than just that, right? It's where the word charge comes into play. It has the idea of testifying or witnessing, imploring, and urging them to do what's right. So a good father leads by example. He offers help with encouraging words, but he also teaches them to do the right thing. Maybe all that's linked together, right? As the father comes along and puts his arm around his child and says, it's okay, we're going to get through this. But maybe he says, let's not do it again. Paul was like that to the Thessalonians. And Paul's parental portrayals of a pastor are so convicting to me. I once preached these verses at a seminary chapel service because there's so much application for spiritual leaders here. 
A good pastor combines the best aspects of both parents. He should be gentle and nurturing and warm and caring like a mother. He's not a spiritual babysitter. There should be some sincere affection there. But on the other hand, if I can say it this way in our modern world, there's also a manly side of pastoring too. A pastor should be like a father and lead by example, encouraging and comforting and continually teaching people to do the right thing. Please pray for me that I can pastor you like a parent. As their spiritual parent, there was one overarching ultimate teaching involved in Paul's example and his words, and we see that in verse 12. If y'all thought y'all were getting out of here with Brother Matt only preaching to himself all day, you're wrong, right? Here comes verse 12. Their lives mattered and how they lived mattered. Verse 12, here's the, here's the encouragement, here's the teaching, here's the exhortation that you would walk worthy of God. That you would walk worthy of God who has called you unto his kingdom and his glory. God called these people into his kingdom and his glory. They were now believers. They were forgiven. They were redeemed. They were no longer floundering around from day to day with no purpose, with no eternal blessings to look forward to like the other polytheistic pagans in the city who had no clue what the afterlife would be like, had no clue what was out there. These people are now children of God with an eternal hope in Jesus Christ, and they need to live like it. So yes, more was expected of them. Yes, there's a higher standard for them. Yes, there's a higher purpose for them. And they need to live like it. So Paul said, walk worthy of God. The word worthy is a great word, and it's an interesting an interesting concept here when we're talking about our lives. Originally, this word gave the picture of ensuring that two sides of a scale or two sides of a balance were equivalent. But not in the sense that one side is pulled down, but in the sense that the other side is raised up. One lexicon uses the phrases, bringing up the other beam of the scales. Don't we still have similar expressions today? You ever heard someone say, don't lower your standards, don't lower your expectations, but do what? Raise the bar. I think that's a beautiful picture of what our lives should be like after we're saved. We don't pull God down to our level, but our lives should be elevated to his. Live a lifestyle worthy of him. Doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we're sinless. But realize that our lives matter. They're important. And we strive to live in a way that suits the gospel. In a way that's fitting and appropriate for all that God has done for us. This isn't anything new in the New Testament. Do you remember in the Old Testament what God told the Israelites? He said, be ye holy. Why? For I am holy. Peter wrote the same thing in his letter. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
This flies in the face of people who claim that Baptists teach that our lives don't matter once we're saved since we teach you can't lose your salvation anyway. Thank God that's true. Thank God that once you trust Jesus Christ, you are eternally secure in him. Your salvation's so good, even you can't mess it up. But the way you live absolutely matters. There's a higher standard now. But we see that in our world all the time. Higher standards and higher expectations for people because of who they are or what they represent, just like a military officer. A civilian might not be punished for speaking disrespectfully, but that's conduct unbecoming an officer. How sad is it when God's children are guilty of conduct unbecoming a Christian? Raise the bar. Live worthy of the God who called you into his kingdom and his glory. That may mean doing things this world doesn't do, like helping people, loving people, praying for people that mistreat you. It may mean not doing things this world does, immoral actions, sinful things, praising people for their sinfulness. Think about how different that would have looked for these people in Thessalonica when a huge percentage of the population is pagan and they are the way they worship their pagan gods is immoral. He said, but you raise the bar and you walk worthy of God. So let's raise our lives up to a godly level, not for salvation. That's already happened, but for service. Raise our lives up so that God can use them as examples to imitate like Paul did. Raise them up so that we can be good witnesses for him. And if you think back to verse 4 from last week, if you were here or if you weren't here, Paul's ultimate motivation can be found in verse 4, and it was to please God and not men anyway. Why should I raise, raise the, the level of my life up? To please God. And the only reason we can even talk about raising our lives up to a level worthy of God is because when we were sinners, our God humbled himself and he traded the glorious throne of heaven for a manger in Bethlehem. He became a man to live and to die and live again for us. That's the only reason I can raise my life up is because he already came down here. Walking worthy isn't to earn salvation, it's because of salvation. The more we grasp what Jesus did for us, his love and mercy and grace, the more we should be motivated to live in a way that fits that, that fits that great gospel message. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, it is the most important decision you'll ever make. Realize that you're a sinner separated from your Creator, and when you could do nothing to raise the bar up to him, he came down to you. If you'll repent and you'll trust him, he will save you. And your life will matter. Let us all walk worthy of our great God and be thankful for those spiritual leaders throughout our lives who have urged us to do so. Let's stand. Let's have a word of prayer.
Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for leading the Apostle Paul to share his heart. We pray for pastors, Lord, across the world that we would pastor like parents and not like babysitters. We pray for each one of us here today, Lord, that our lives would be elevated to a level worthy of you. And we need your help and your grace to do that. Father, if there's someone here today who's lost, we pray for their salvation. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.